This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here uh, with me on one continent is David Canfield. Hi, Katie. And over across the seas in Europe and can specifically still, uh, we have uh, Richard Lawson. Bonsoir. And Rebecca Ford. Hello. Richard and Rebecca, thank you for making the time to talk to us in your busy can schedule. Um, it has been a busy, really exciting can for those of us watching from a distance. So we're going to catch up with you guys and all the highlights of the festival, which is still ongoing. We still have no awards. There's lots of festival yet to go, but um, lots to discuss. Um, but before any of that, I want to um, talk to David about this great piece that he published this week. Um, David, you've been looking into for, for months, really, a conversation we've had internally many times about what do we do about the <laughs> The fact that all of these major awards are very rigidly divided by gender and the world increasingly is not. Um, and there are a lot of stars in Hollywood who are kind of slowly starting to speak up about that. A lot of younger stars um, kind of in keeping with trends in general. Um, and you talked to a lot of them for this piece. Um, you didn't solve the issue yet, <laughs> but I think the conversation that happened in that piece is really gratifying to read. And I, I think it was gratifying for you to report as well. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for the for the kind words. And it was <laughs> it was it's it's not it, it's not an issue that I see the same way as I did when I went into reporting the piece. Mainly because you know, I talked to a range of actors, people who've been in this industry for a long time, people who have just experienced their breakouts, and they've all communicated roughly the same thing, which is that this system is not for them, mm-hmm. and uh, whatever change can happen that is most amenable for the Academy, most doable for these various awards bodies, it doesn't really matter to them until they feel like they can be a part of the system in a way that doesn't essentially force them to choose a gender between Mm -hmm. actor and actress. Because while actor is a historically non-gendered term, it is a gendered term now in the way that these award shows use it. And that's just pretty undeniable. I spoke with a couple actors who have chosen no, to no longer submit for awards consideration. Uh, one of the more interesting stories for me is Asia Kate Dillon. They were the first non-binary actor ever on a primetime show uh, in a regular part for Showtime's Billions. When they joined that cast, they submitted as a supporting actor. They defended it uh, as best they could in a variety piece, I believe. And now they regret doing that. And they're, they were in Macbeth, the Broadway uh, show with... Daniel Craig and Ruth Nega, they did not submit uh, to the Tonys that year. They are not submitting to the Emmys uh, anymore, as far as I'm aware, for Billions, uh, because they believe that this is a system that needs to change. And until then, they don't feel welcome in it. Uh, And then I also spoke with Bella Ramsey, who is the breakout star of The Last of Us. Uh, They now use they, them pronouns. And they are submitting as an actress. They had a lot of tough conversations with their team, with the show's uh, showrunner, Craig Mazin. And they determined that while they feel like they are not welcome in either category and taking an actress label particularly is not one that they would assume for themselves, they don't want to feel like non-binary actors can't be recognized. And so it's this impossible negotiation Mm. that each of these actors are facing of like, do I make this kind of personal sacrifice in order to, you know, throw my hat in the ring? You know, Bella Ramsey gave one of the most acclaimed performances of the year this Emmy season. And, and, I think that there is a fair point to be made of, well, it's not fair that I have to do this, but it's also not fair that I can't be considered. So um, that's a long way of saying that this is a really complicated issue. And and the goal was really to just highlight these stories and and where these actors find themselves right now. 
Yeah, not just to throw their hat in the ring to be personally considered, but to represent other people. I mean, the power of representation is something we talk about every year at the Oscars and so many other award shows and non-binary people continue to be not especially visible in Hollywood. Um, And Hollywood has a a hard time representing anyone outside of the straight white male norm. Um, So you really see the power and the pressure put on people like Bella Ramsey to, to stand up and be visible and represent a community, but then have to shove themselves into a category as a result. It's a, it's impossible situation, like you said. Yeah, and and one theme that came across was this is not this isn't exactly a conversation that anybody wants to be having. Um, some of these actors feel really strongly about having it and about advocating for non-binary talent, non-binary um, recognition. But you know, I spoke with uh, Justin David Sullivan, who is a breakout star of the Broadway musical and Juliet, uh, and they decided not to submit. It was reported in the New York Times and it became this huge story. And, you know, this is an actor who'd never been on Broadway before. They had no real public profile to speak of and were really overwhelmed. And they said scared by the attention they got, the pushback they got, um, just by making a kind of private decision that then blew up. And um, they talked about growing up as a theater kid, the dream from when you're on your first show is to be a Tony nominee someday. And it's not something that they feel happy about, but it is what they feel they have to do for themselves. It's interesting, David, because I think, you know, I think about this with representation all the time, like putting all the responsibility and the burden on the people who are fighting for this rather than the organizations like moving forward with change is just so frustrating. And I know in your piece, you mentioned that, you know, the TV Academy and the Tonys and they're all like assessing it. But did you get any feel as to like if there's going to be movement soon? It just feels like this issue has been building and building. Yeah, there's on the one hand, it feels like some of these shows are a little bit intractable and they don't really have the ability right now to even speak on (laughs) what they can do to solve this issue because it is a complex issue and we can get into some of the problems with finding an easy solution. But there is a sense that there is some inevitability to having to answer for this and having to adjust this. I honestly was a bit surprised by how little headway I was able to make with the organizations themselves. The Television Academy particularly, you know, released a statement to me that they'd released before, essentially emphasizing that performers can adjust the language on their trophy or nomination certificate uh, from actor or actress to performer. And they said that there's no gender requirement for eligibility. And I actually, you know, pass this along to a couple of the performers I spoke with. And Asia Kate Dillon said, that is an admission that these categories are completely arbitrary. Um, <laughs> it's almost like gender is a construct. <laughs> you know, I putting on my objective reporter hat, but I, I do agree with that. I think that it's really impossible to say that you have an actress and actor category, and yet there's no gender requirement here. I mean, obviously, that's what it's there for. Um, and so I, I did just respond to the Academy with this kind of point that a couple of the actors had made, and they just said the statement stands as is. So there's not really a willingness at this point to, at least on the record, engage with these debates. Um, But there's no question that this is a trend that's only going to accelerate. And I just don't see how they're going to be able to proceed as is, especially as other smaller awards shows are leaping ahead of them in terms of of change. We just need to see what that change looks like, though. You know, like... Uh, the Gotham Awards, oh, was it two years ago, did the first, their their first non-gendered. And wouldn't you know, there happened to be a tie and it one cis man won and one cis woman won. The fear has been if you go genderless uh, or all gender uh, in the in the acting categories, you're giving out less award, fewer awards per night about the ones that people care about, you know, um, and that Daniel Day-Lewis beats Meryl Streep every time, you know. Yep. And I'm curious, David, in your reporting, like, did anything you you learned or, or anything that someone said to you change any of those fears? You know, obviously we want to include as many people as we can, but there, the, the tendency in Hollywood is still to think of men, cis men, being the serious actors, and then oh yeah, you know, like that that actress was good too. Um, yeah. What what does the future look like in terms of that? I don't know that those fears were allayed. A number of people pointed to this past Oscar season and basically were unanimous that it would have been 
Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh, if it were two, uh, mm-hmm. and that they were the two strongest lead performance contenders. Um, That's such a fun Oscars to imagine, though. <laughs> I'm just going to yes. linger in that for a while. Yes. But there's also the acknowledgement that that was a pretty unusual case. The case of Everything Everywhere All at Once generally was a groundbreaking, unusual case. For me, it was more when this sentiment was presented to non-binary actors, it's like, well, that's not our problem. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And and unfortunately, whatever limitations the industry has uh, in terms of representing women, let alone queer people, that's on the industry. And if anything, it's a wake-up call that the industry needs to change in the same way that you know Oscar So White was. And when you get into this question of quotas and making sure it's an equal balance, um, you might be presenting a false image of where the industry's at anyway. Um, I personally do think it's a it's a real concern, and the Academy especially does not want to suddenly ice out the majority of, of women in acting categories simply because um, this is a change they have to make. And that's a really real fear. Um, the other really important element here, to your point, Richard, about you know, the acting categories being the most popular is the Oscars are really focused on staying on track after getting back on track last year, you know, to the, to what people perceived. Um, and that means not rocking the boat. And so that's a big challenge is with award shows in such a precarious position to begin with, they're really just looking to make moves that are the most, the safest and most clean to keep enough viewers in the tent, keep enough people happy, keep the industry happy, because the Oscars had been dealing with so much controversy that, you know, even just getting back to basics was considered a big success. I mean, Rebecca, you do the most reporting among us about inside the Academy, and we were kind of following the social media guidelines that they released after the two Leslie scandal, and they were, you know, extensive, but not groundbreaking in some way. I mean, what is your sense of willingness within the Academy to push the envelope in this direction at all? Well, we did a, God, was it a year ago? There was a sort of a press Q&A with Bill Kramer and, and someone did ask about this and he said it wasn't something that was uh, a priority to look at right now. But I would say in the last year, the conversation around this has increased tremendously since then. So I would sense that they are looking at it, but obviously they felt like clearing up the campaign rules was a more urgent issue. It It just feels like, change is slow with this group and and complicated because yeah the question is when you're looking at this big of a voting body what do you do with these categories you create a new category if you're combining performers into one uh, the categories for the oscars have not they don't switch around as much as you see like with the emmys and stuff so if they could do song score for like four years in the 90s, <laughs> they, can, they can figure this out. And if they so easily, yeah, took uh, mixing and sound editing and sound mixing and just combined them. It's like, I, I don't know. I feel like in the sound branch, that took some doing. Like, yeah. Again, these things yeah, move slow. That's true. It, it, they yeah. move very slow. Yeah, but the actors branch is the biggest branch. And, it, you know, I think... If a lot of the actors are sort of paying attention to this, even if it isn't an issue that directly affects them, um, you know, I think they can be a really loud voice. There's an opportunity to game this out a little bit, too, because you can't just drop two categories without compensating in some way. So the Spirits instituted a breakthrough performance award that Stephanie Hsu won. So the Spirits now have three acting categories as opposed they once had four. And they also recently instituted television, which I think helped them you know, compensate for that loss a little bit because they have big, you know, Quinta Brunson winning on the TV side is a notable moment for them as well. Um, You can think about, you know, genre or um, LAFCA still honors two per category, even if it's genderless and there's only two categories. So there's a lot of different ways they could go about it. There's ensemble prizes um, that you could look into. So it's, it's interesting to think about the fact that for the Academy to do this, they would have to go a lot further than they usually do in compensating. And that would mean pretty radically altering the shape of their most popular awards, which, um, yeah, it's a big thing. They don't make changes very easily. (laughs) And um, I think that makes it both more exciting and more unlikely that we're going to see any change from them in the next few years. The the shows that I would really look to more imminently. Uh, in, in whispers, the the expectation is that the Tony Awards are going to make a change within the next few years, if not next year. 
That just seems to be where the wind is blowing for that particular awards show. And the SAG Awards. Um, the SAG Awards are in a really tough spot right now because they call their categories male actor in a leading role or whatever and female actor. And you cannot <laughs> even do the TV Academy thing of claiming it's genderless, even if it's not. You know, it's it's quite literally in the description of the category. So they're going to have to make some adjustments. And I don't know that simply making it act an actor and actress will be viable given the climate. So they're probably going to have to do something. I'm just not sure what. Yeah, they're about to go on. Oh, they might go on strike, too. Just imagine a really big year for SAG, <laughs> a strike and some awards changes. Yeah. Um, I think it was Liv Houston in your piece who uh, decided not to submit for I mean, consideration for Yellow Jackets, who was just basically like, reinvent it. Like, there's not a limit to it. And that, that kind of expansive thinking is something that uh, awards bodies in particular have really lacked over the years. But I think that really helped me rethink because I have an attachment I think I've said on the podcast before like I like the the long ribbon of history of best actress and like like the idea that Betty Davis won the same statue that Michelle Yeoh won but it's not as important as people and I think that's something you said David too like not that you didn't know that before reporting this piece but that like recognizing the humanity of people who are in this industry is more important than tradition and history and I think there's there's a way to learn that for everybody else too. Yeah, and everyone on this podcast especially loves tradition and history with these shows. Um, so it's not it's not a realization I come to lightly or that doesn't feel sort of strange, maybe. But yeah, if you acknowledge the existence of non-binary people in your favorite shows and movies, walking amongst you, in your family, et cetera, et cetera, then in turn, you have to acknowledge that this is not a system that is um, workable for them and that that's a problem because... These are people <laughs> yeah. who are in this industry, who are out there. And how you reconcile those two things, I, I'm not quite sure without overhauling these categories in some way, come whatever consequence uh, related to ratings or prestige, you know, quote unquote, because obviously that's partly a made up word in this context. What, Whatever may come, that that feels like the biggest issue to me and the one that will ultimately, however long it takes, win the day. Do any of us feel like we have a good idea for what, they, what the Oscars specifically should do? Because that, that, to me, feels like the hardest one to solve, maybe just because I care about the Oscars the most. Well, not to segue too hard, but um, at Cannes, when they do the awards show, they have first, second, and third prize. So if you yeah. want to give out mm-hmm. more acting prizes but keep it non-gendered, let's have first, second, and third prize in lead actor and first, second, and third in supporting. That's six awards. <laughs> Yeah, do people really, but do people really want second and third, Richard, <laughs> in Hollywood? <laughs> if you nominate ten people for each category, yeah, you're top I would, three. I personally would love to see Kate Blanchett accept second prize. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that would really be the highlight of the show for me. Well, isn't that always our dream? Is to see the tallies, Fosk. Like I, I keep thinking exactly. maybe when the Oscars yeah. turn a hundred, they'll let us see the like vote tallies from the twenties or something, just to know. Um, so yeah, that would eighty-year gap. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everyone involved is dead, and then you can finally release the tallies. This was more um, off the record, but someone presented an interesting kind of idea for me. The general response to the Spirit Awards and the way that was handed out, I don't think was too great, at least within the industry. But they basically said, nominate 10 lead actors, lead performers, 10 supporting performers, have the voting go 10 and 10, give wins out to, you know, top two each win, and then present those four in batches of five nominees and just randomly, you know, distribute them in the show. And so it would be not a lot of difference to the viewer necessarily, hmm. which is an interesting idea, but it's it's obviously not the same thing, but it, it does solve to some extent the, the disruption factor, I suppose. I mean, we know these award shows want as many stars as humanly possible in those rooms for people to tune in. So it feels like there is an opportunity to somehow craft the category so there's actually more stars nominated yep. and in the room. And then you also think about, like, we all have people that we wish had been nominated. Maybe they were from a small indie or a film that wasn't seen. Like, maybe there is a way to have a breakthrough character in indie film acting. I don't know what it would be, but to give a chance to actors whose films didn't have the, the same opportunity. I don't know what the answer yeah. to that is. It's a hard question. I mean, we're not denying that, that's for sure. 
and the Oscar for Best Actor in a Movie No One Saw goes to? <laughs> to Andrew Riceboro. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then you have Best Actor in a Movie Everyone Saw. <laughs> and then Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. <laughs> wins, yeah. wins once again. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would love to hear from our listeners about their ideas for solving this. Um, I think we all know that it will be a while before the Oscars get somewhere. And it would be interesting if by the time the Oscars are really ready to make this change, there's more of a consensus about what could happen. I think that would maybe help them feel pushed in the direction. Because right now, like, everyone's got some ideas, but there's no, like, guys, just do this thing. Um, so, yeah, if you want to be the ones to solve it, email us. I would love to hear about it. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Okay, Richard, you mentioned Cannes Awards earlier in the show. We're not at the awards yet. Um, I don't. Will you still be in town when the awards get handed out, or um, will you guys both be gone by then? We'll both be gone. I've never been in town for the awards, which is a shame because apparently it is kind of a fun evening. But there's certainly been a lot of chatter leading up to those awards, which has been interesting. Um, well, as of as of when we are recording, which is on Tuesday, there are still some major premieres left to happen. But all right, Richard and Rebecca, what's going to win the Palm? Well, everyone seems to think that there are two no-brainers in terms of the big can awards. One, unfortunately, is a movie that Rebecca and I both have not seen <laughs> because of scheduling problems, and that would be actress Sandra Hewler for a film called Anatomy of a Fall, which is kind of a French legal thriller. Um, people really liked it. It sounds very entertaining. It was described to me as prestige HBO kind of thing. So she, people are thinking she's going to win Best, best Actress. In The Palm Door, Sandra Hewler is in a second movie called The Zone of Interest from Jonathan Glazer, which is a very harrowing, high-style drama about the Holocaust that is really the movie in competition that has blown most people away this year. Ahem, ahem, Rebecca. Um, <laughs> um, we'll get there, Rebecca. And, we'll get there. And, um, and so people seem to think that that is going to win. And so Sandra Hewler will win for one movie that she's in, and then another movie she's in will win Palm d'Or. Uh, Sandra Hewler was in Tony Erdman a few years ago, another big t- uh, can breakout. I was just going to say, we know her name from something else major at Cannes, right? Yeah. The minute you see her face, you remember her from Tony Erdman. Like, she's so recognizable. Yeah. We just should be careful to remember that the juries are different each year. It's a different round of people, you know, slate of people. So predicting what's going to win is often a fool's errand, especially because as it tends to break down, the thing you are convinced is going to win very rarely actually does. Um, well, let's talk more about Zone of Interest because that's definitely one I was interested to hear about. I read your review, Richard, and it sounds uh, maybe physically painful to watch, which is an interesting uh, for predicting its uh, success. Outside <laughs> the well, David's ready to be a masochist. Um, I mean, yeah, Richard, you just want to talk more about what you talked about in your review? Yeah, it's um, so it's a very loose adaptation of the recently late Martin Amis's novel, um, and Jonathan Glazer in adapting the film, which he did. I guess really over the course of a decade, um, lots of research and whatnot, he swapped out Amos's fictional uh, characters for real people. Um, and so we're really focused on uh, Rudolf Haas and his family. Rudolf Haas was the uh, longest serving commandant of Auschwitz. Um, he was there when the final solution was really put into play, especially with um, Jews coming from Hungary. Uh, so he oversaw personally the death of, you know, I, by some estimates, two million people. Um, so a horrible man, and uh, with a family that was at best, com- you know, just kind of passively complicit in this. And that's who the film is about. It, it the film we go into the actual camp once, very briefly, um, and we only have a, the, the shot. Only shot is of Rudolf's face, so we don't see any prisoners, we don't see any barracks, anything like that. Um, instead, we mostly spend time in their house across the wall 
with a lovely garden and a swimming pool and a little barking dog and cute kids and a visit from, you know, from grandma. And um, we hear some sounds in the distance of what we assume to be horrible things. We see a smokestack billowing smoke and flame. Um, we see ash raining down into the yard. So we know what's happening, but Blazer really keeps us trained on just the, I mean, I think every review of this movie used the term, the banality of evil. Mm. Um, the, the, just the everydayness of these people's lives, the way that they completely compartmentalized what was happening on their side of the wall and the other. Um, which might seem sort of almost gimmicky, but um, in my view of it, it really works. I mean, I think in not showing you what we're used to seeing in, in movies like Schindler's List, uh, but having the implication ever there, I think it really speaks to this current moment of of our you know world and and uh, of our time and 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 we are watching a lot of people who have maybe gone from being deliberately pro, you know uh, provocative on 4chan making jokes about Jewish people and now all of a sudden that ideology has become apparent in elected Congress people. And um, I think that to focus on those people, the, the bad actors or the people who passively abet it, um, is probably a good tack to take at this current juncture. And I think that the movie definitely has contemporary politics on its mind. So Rebecca, it sounds like you had a tougher time. And I, I, I guess I don't blame you based on how this sounds. No, I mean, I uh, found the film very unsettling and it you know, my question is always, did this film accomplish what it set out to do and make me feel what it wanted to? And, and yes, it did. And I think everyone should see it. My mistake was reading up about the book before I went in. And I said, oh, the book's about a love triangle. How interesting. And then I waited in this movie <laughs> for a love triangle that never appeared. And so I think I had an expectation problem, which obviously other people will not have now that reviews are out and uh, people can read about it. But I, I mean, the filmmaking is very bold. There's a choice he makes that uses sort of like, what is it, Richard? Night vision or infrared filming? Yeah, kind of night vision, black and that, white night vision. Yeah, yeah that I, I it didn't quite work for me. Um, you know, it, would, it kind of took me out of the, the film a little bit more than what I've liked. But I still thought about it the entire rest of the night, the entire next day. It, it definitely accomplishes what it sets out to do. So I, I don't think it's a bad film. I think I had a uh, sort of a poor experience because of what I went in expecting. So everyone can learn from my mistake. It is not about a love triangle. <laughs> no, it's not. That little aspect of the book is basically only briefly hinted at in one scene. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it's much more. So I guess Glazer, when filming it um, in this house, and a lot of it was filmed actually on the, the grounds of, of what's left of Auschwitz. Um, wow. Uh, he set up cameras in the house and then he left. And so mm. the actors are just kind of walking around. Um, and so you very much feel like a fly on the wall. I believe Stephanie Zakarik, uh, in her time review, um, compared it to like being a little mouse crouching in a corner watching these people. Mm. Um, and it's really effective. I mean, it's a very structuralist, like high form movie, you know? And um, I think that if we're talking about like, okay, what what are what is this movie going to do Throughout the rest of the season, it's coming out in December. A24 is releasing it on a raft of, you know, incredibly strong reviews for the most part. Um, I wonder what the appeal will be because it is a miserable sit. And you have Michael Levy's score just really reminding you that you, we are dwelling in hell, you know, and or at least right next door to hell. Um, and uh, it's punishing. Um, I think it's really effective and a sort of necessary jolt to the system. But I don't know if its lack of sentimentality, which as brutal as Schindler's List is, there is that sort of powerfully moving point, you know, ending in the real people putting stones on his grave and title cards talking about how many people he saved and thus how many grandchildren he let, you know, exist in the world, essentially. Um, this movie has none of that. Uh, and I wonder if that might prove to uh, not to be cynical, but art house uh, for the Academy. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like something that is best discussed outside of its Oscar chances, maybe, which, um, you know, we're yeah, capable of doing that. never exists. That doesn't exist, Katie. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. Not here. Not in this podcast. Well, can is always interesting for that, though, right? Like, yeah. Okay, sorry. Go ahead, David. I do, from what I've read, I mean, I have not seen the movie, um, but it, when you see the kinds of reviews that it's getting, you know, as a consensus, it's pretty undeniable as at least a contender for nominations. 
And I do think of late, the Academy has proven pretty willing to go out on a bit more of a limb for really acclaimed art house titles, at least with the branches for nominations, and then they just don't give them any wins. So um, sight unseen, that would be my prediction right now. I think that Glazer and director, that yeah. that feels like something that could happen here at Cannes could certainly happen in terms of a direct uh, Academy nomination. I mean, you know, this is a guy who has only made four films um, and yet is is sort of installed as one of the greats of the sort of international art house. You know, you know, Birth was probably the one of his that didn't get a lot of love on its first run and, you know, and then has become a cult classic since. But Sexy Beast prior to that, Under the Skin after that, uh, and now Zone of Interest, like this guy is pretty much four for four. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, like Todd Field before, he, he takes his time. He's deliberate. These movies are years apart. Like, I, I think that the CAD, the directing branch certainly would appreciate that. And it does feel like there's always, or lately there's been a slot for sort of one international uh, filmmaker that he would mm-hmm. easily yeah. fit into that slot. Is I he think, American? Right? He's British, but the movie's all in German. You could also, I think, compare it to like a Ruben Osland situation. Mm. Just, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, Triangle of Sadness being kind of honorary international feature. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, okay, Rebecca, what have you loved? May, December is definitely my favorite film. I saw it the next morning after Zone of Interest. And, you know, I, I didn't really know much about what the tone would be. This is the Todd Haynes film that stars Natalie Portman as a actress who goes to a small town to study the subject of her next film, who's played by Julian Moore, who is a woman who had a, um, a, a scandal in, I don't know how much are we, how much did you say in your review, Richard? I feel like I can say. Yeah. I, I mentioned a specific real life name that it seems to be borrowing from. Oh, I thought that was like knowledge, right? Was it knowledge before we sat in that it, it was inspired by that? I mean, the title think, of the movie kind of tells you what kind of relationships <laughs> at the center of it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yes, it's a woman who had a had a sexual relationship with a boy who was in seventh grade. And now they are uh, the, the young man is now 36 and they're still married and have kids. And so uh, Natalie Portman's character goes in to sort of study them. And it. There, there's a scene. There's a moment very early on in the film that just tells you what the tone is going to be, and you laugh, or I laughed, and just the way he he handles tone and every choice he makes in this film, I just really, really loved it. The performances are really incredible. Charles Melton plays the the ma- the young man in the film, and I think he, you know, he's from Riverdale. I don't think anyone knew if if he could stand uh you know side to side with julian moore and natalie portman but he his role i think is extremely difficult and he really pulls it off and uh, i just left the movie so happy because i think it was just such a bold and interesting film so that was by far my favorite it's a real high wire act to make a movie with that central premise funny yeah you know um because it's a terrible thing what happened you know um it was terrible when mary Kay letourneau did it in real life it's terrible when um Gracie does it in, or did it in this movie. Uh, she's the, the Julian Moore character. Um, but somehow it doesn't feel queasy. It's not making light of what happened. It's making light of them now, or Julian Moore now, and, and, and it's making light of Hollywood sort of preying on these real life stories to, to, you know, to make movies out of, to make TV shows out of, make podcasts out of. Um, but it's not didactic about that either. It's, it's just, it's a weird campy, um, thing that, um, you know, in in different ways, both Portman and Moore are perfectly suited for this kind of thing. Julianne Moore has her soap opera past. Natalie Portman of late, I think has kind of reinvented herself as this, like, I do big performances actor, you know? So it's like a Vox Lux kind of thing? Uh, it's more of a, um, yeah, it's a little Vox Lux, I guess, a little, little bit of um, Lucy in the Sky, you know, just kind of, but she's a lot slyer and shrewder than that character in, in this movie. You know, some great monologues, like, it's just, it's the, this, the music is sort of very old school and pulpy and well, that and erotic thriller. It's just like, it's perfectly pitched for Portman and Moore. Like yeah. these are the two actors um, that I can think of, both of whom have, uh, or no, I guess just Moore has worked with Todd Haynes in the past, right. but 
But um, they just, I don't know, they're a perfect fit for it. And then, yeah, you have Melton who's like, oh, geez, good luck, kid. Like, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> tough. But he really does pull it off and he becomes the sort of heart of the film as he should be, you know, as the sort of victim at the center of this. Um, and uh, it's just, it's again, it's a really tricky line to walk. And I think they somehow manage it really well. Yeah, I interviewed Natalie Portman and Todd Haynes here in Cannes, and Natalie is the one who actually brought on Todd Haynes and thought, like, no other director is going to be able to to deliver the, the tone here. And I think that was really a, a very smart move. And then obviously Todd brought on Julian Moore since they have such a long working relationship together. So it just feels like there could have been one misstep that made this film really not work. And, mm. and that's why I really find it so impressive. So this one has been picked up by Netflix uh, for a decent amount of money. So I think uh, talking about its Oscar chances is more uh, appropriate than maybe for the zone of mm-hmm. interest, um, which I think is really exciting. Like, I feel like a Todd Haynes awards moment is really overdue. Um, you know, Carol had its challenges in terms of awards recognition. He's like been here before. But I, I'm really intrigued by the, the possibilities here for all three of the actors as well as Todd Haynes. Yeah. Makes me happy to see him get that kind of investment in a in a campaign. I mean, the last time he really had a significant contender was it was with the Weinstein Company. Yeah. <laughs> so it's nice to see, um, yes, a, a studio like Netflix that you know goes to Cannes to invest in awards contenders really put their might behind uh, a filmmaker who hasn't always gotten the fairest shake in that regard. Um, so regardless of what happens, that that made me smile. Not to make you and uh, David and Katie jealous, but before this recording, Rebecca and I had lunch together in the little windy hill streets of the old town of Cannes. Well, 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 um, of course you did. And um, and she was she's a lot more sanguine about its awards chances. I my fear is that it's too campy, it's too weird, it's a little too risque for the Academy. But Rebecca, Rebecca you feel differently. Yeah, I well, I I sort of compared it, and I was actually talking to buyers after I saw it because they were also all wondering about its awards chances, and I I I compared it sort of as like Carol crossed with Tar because I think the Academy obviously appreciated Tar's um, tone and moments of weirdness and humor, and so I think that they're going to appreciate this more than, you know, maybe Richard is anticipating or I would have thought a few years ago. Um, I, the, the performances are undeniable. It's an actor playing an actor, which I think they'll just eat up because I also love that stuff. And Natalie <laughs> has certain moments where you're just, they're just like stunning performance moments. So I feel like, you know, as long as the campaign is done right um, and we know Netflix can really support a campaign, um, we're going to see it. I would think at least acting and screenplay, if not more. Um, I do hope, wish people or hope people can see it in theaters because I really like those moments where you realize the audience is also feeling those campy moments with you. You know, that is a, a sort of a rare experience these days, I think. So, you know, I hope there will be some screenings, at least for press and other people to experience it with an audience. We we got very lucky because there's really only one screening of the movie where you don't know that it's a comedy. And that was yeah. ours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, because <laughs> now the word's out. And they did a good job of keeping that quiet, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but, but yes, I do agree. I think that even if you know ahead of time that there's going to be a comedic element to it, the way that it establishes that very early on um, is, is worth kind of discovering with other people. Yeah. You're all making me very nervous about a, uh, a repeat of 2010 where Natalie Portman and Annette Benning were nominated for Best Actress Against Each Other. And um, Netflix also has Nyad, the Annette Benning uh, biopic coming out later this fall that I think Ugh. some of us are already hoping is finally Annette Benning's chance to win an Oscar. Um, also, Julianne Moore was in Kids Are Right with Annette Benning, So everyone is all back under the same roof now. The 2010 Where's, Oscars where's Hillary Swank is the real question. <laughs> <laughs> She's coming up. Just watch out. Um, My hunch is they would run Julianne in supporting. Even though I don't know if that would maybe be well, a little bit of cheating. Well, that's what they did in 2010, Richard, and Natalie Portman went home with the Oscar. So are we going to deny Nat Benning once again? Uh, well, I don't know. Netflix is going to have to sort that out. <laughs> do, do, do I have a chip on my shoulder? You've already got your little map with all your red red lines on on your wall, don't you? I can tell. Cut to an ad, and Katie's like, this week's episode is brought to you by Annette Benning. <laughs> just, <laughs> just personally. I mean, well, this is maybe a, a topic for closer to the fall festivals, but the crowdedness of Netflix's slate is certainly something we can um, get to talking about. We've all got our eye on Maestro coming up. There's a lot of other things uh, in the hopper there. Um, we'll see how they manage to balance it all. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. 
There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Richard, lead off with another movie. Well, one movie, a big movie premiering tonight, another American film that I was shocked to like was Asteroid City from Wes Anderson. Um, I have not liked one of his movies in a long time, uh, maybe since Moonrise Kingdom. And even then, uh, nothing on par with like how I felt about Tenenbaums or whatever. And from the trailer, Asteroid City seemed to be, oh, okay, here we go, another. It's so presentational. It's a little curio. It's just quirky to the point of, you know, inhumanity. But something about Asteroid City and, and sort of this tone, and I think it's kind of about the pandemic and isolation, or being stuck somewhere and all that. Like, it really got me. When I saw it, I felt like I was going to cry for like half the movie, mm. which is not a feeling I've had about his movies in a long time. The cast is great. They're all going to be at the premiere minus one person, I think. So that'll be a great red carpet moment that will have passed by the time this episode airs. But I was very pleasantly surprised to... Um, not just not be annoyed by a Wes Anderson movie in 2023, <laughs> but to really like genuinely embrace it and to feel moved by it. I've been really excited for Asteroid City, um, but it's also been hard for those of us just watching the trailers, like to figure out who is the star and who's really going to pop in it. Who stood out for you? I mean, Jason Schwartzman is maybe the first among equals, I guess you could say. Um, he his, he plays a, a recent widower who has, as the start of the film, has not told his kids that their mother has died yet. Um, so that's obviously something to grab onto, but it really is an ensemble piece. And But the great thing is, is that everyone gets their due. You know, the, everyone that I can think of in the cast like has a nice moment, either of comedy or something a little more melancholy. Tom Hanks plays Jason Schwartzman's uh, father-in-law um, really well. Uh, Hope Davis and Liev Schreiber kind of pop by as pa- other parents on this basically gifted students convention. Um, Tilda Swinton is a kind of nerdy scientist. Um, Margot Robbie, who I think is the one person not attending the premiere this uh, tonight, um, she has this lovely monologue late in the film. Um, there's a meta conceit to the movie where it's a, t- a television show about a play and then most of the movie that we see is that play kind of filmed. It's weird. So Margot Robbie has a monologue in sort of one of the middle layers of that meta-ness. <laughs> um, and uh, she's really great. Um, yeah, so even though it's a very populated film, you, you worry that, oh, well, they're just going to have this ex, you know, actor X show up with nothing to do. But I th- everyone does have at least a moment, which I appreciated. I, I know that David has a close eye on Hope Davis in particular, our uh, always great uh captain so <laughs> are always great captain. well there was a clip that was released of scarlett johansson and, and hope davis and every headline was like introducing scarlett johansson but hope davis completely stole the clip so anyway yeah, yeah. that's a great scene <laughs> scarlett johansson is really good throughout she and schwartzman have a flirtation in the movie um and this is just me probably being too like undergraduate about it but like a lot of their, most of their flirtation, if not all, is him sitting in the window of his little cabin and her sitting in the window of hers and looking at each other across the, the little alleyway. And I'm like, oh, is this Zoom windows? <laughs> like, I th- like, I think, I, I think it, I, I don't know. That was, I was like, I think that this sounds is like zoomy a, to me. Yeah. A metaphor yeah. for talking over a computer. She's great. She and Schwartzman should do something else together. They have really good chemistry. Um, but yeah, that Hope Davis scene is, she's, she's pretty great. I'm, I'm really I, I I'm warmer towards Wes Anderson. I think we were all a little cold on on French Dispatch, but um, it it feels like it's his sweet spot. So I'm I'm really glad to hear you liked it, Richard. And I I'm I kind of can't wait for it. I'm I'm seeing it. I will have seen it by the time this episode is out as well. And it's out in June, so all of us get to see it relatively yeah, soon. Yeah, it's out is, soon, which is a nice feeling. I'm seeing it in an hour, Richard. Awards? <laughs> what do you think? <sighs> I mean, I, I love Richard Colin awards. <laughs> yeah, the name of this episode. Um, I don't think I'm going to get any awards for it. Probably not. No. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I it is in competition. Is Ruben Oslin someone who's going to be really swayed by Wes Anderson's, you know, twelfth or whatever film? I don't know. I think there is definitely flashier stuff here. This is just kind of nice and star studded and pl- a kind of p- nice palate cleanser. I mean, in in some ways, the way that May December was. 
for after zone of interest, you know, <laughs> like I think that that balance uh, is important to have at Cannes. But there's not an actor I think they would they could be able to kind of grab onto. Um, yeah. What about those other awards? Heard of them? Those big ones. Start with an O. Richard, did you predict <laughs> Asteroid City in our year ahead, or did you just do that with French Dispatch like twice? Because no, he he did. I, <laughs> I, I did rem- Asteroid I City. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I th- I think that's a that's a below the line thing for sure. You know, maybe a Best Picture, um, but um, it doesn't have the. It while I found it very emotional in subtle ways. I think that you know Tenenbaums or whatever like that has like a direct like that is about difficult dad and then he dies you know at the end of the movie Spoiler. and that's sorry <laughs> yeah 20, 20 years later um, that is like pretty easy to sort of grab onto this is more of decidedly a Wes Anderson curio the difference between this and French Dispatch for me anyway is that um, this offered something to connect with it feels more outward facing um, than Dispatch which felt very much like a one for him kind of thing mm. and so maybe the Academy will feel warmer to it than they did the French Dispatch, but I see that more in terms of its really beautiful production design and and whatnot, but maybe not um, any of the big the big categories. Um, all right, well, I'm going to go Oscar-y again for the movie that I don't know when I'll get to see, and I'm going to lose my mind between now and then, um, that you guys have seen Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, Rebecca, you got to talk to Lily Gladstone, who to me is the toast of Cannes, but actually it seems like not just me. Like She, she is getting uh, justifiably celebrated at Cannes. <laughs> Yeah, it's not just you. I I thought she is phenomenal in this film. You can't take your eyes off her. Her oh, should I say what it's about first? Yes, this is um, this is Martin Scorsese's film about based on a true story and uh, based on David Grant's book about a Native American tribe called the Osage that became very wealthy um, from the oil on their land and then began to um, sort of be mysteriously and brutally killed and sort of finding out, you know, who um, has has been behind that. Um, the book, I think, sort of unfolds very differently than the film um, when it comes to that aspect of the story. But, you know, Lily Gladstone plays one of the Osage women who marries a white man who is played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, and she, this character is really stoic, but also like witty at times. And it's a really tough performance and she plays it with such confidence. And there's a part of the film where her character is not in it as much in the second half. And I, I missed her, you know, I wanted her to be on screen more. So it was really wonderful to sit down with her. She, she is, um, a really interesting interview because she gives you really, really long answer. You know, she's not giving you a little soundbite. She is thoughtfully answering your questions. And I really enjoyed talking to her. Um, and especially about the way she used her own family history being raised on a reservation to inform this character and, and what her her own grandmother sort of had in common with this character. Um so I'm excited for her. You know, obviously a Native American actor has never won an Oscar. There have been a couple of nominations, but the representation for that group in Hollywood has been so horrible that I'm really excited to see, you know, how this film does and goes as it goes into release and more people get to see it. Can I picture Reunited on the air for Kelly Reichardt <laughs> and Lily Gladstone? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. Uh, I'm uh, here for it. Yeah, at one point, Lily was said, I don't watch a lot of award shows. I was like, you might have to start watching award <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when you have a conversation like that with someone who hasn't been through the Oscar circuit, you're just like, okay, I hope you're ready. Like, yeah. I hope you've got yeah. some comfortable shoes and you're ready to do this. <laughs> just get rest now. It's going to be a, quite an experience. But obviously, we're also talking about, you know, another incredible performance from Leo and 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 the filmmaking is so beautiful. I, I, I really enjoyed the first half more than the second. I've, I've run into some people who say the opposite i think when you're talking about a three and a half hour movie (laughs) you can't like you're not it's impossible to like all of it but um you know i thought he did some really interesting storytelling um choices that i also really appreciated i really noticed um dicaprio popping in a lot of reactions and reviews which Kind of feels like an actor we we take for granted a little bit at this point, or that maybe just doesn't get those kinds of notices. Because I also thought he was really excellent in Don't Look Up, but um, I'm not sure where you guys think he falls on the Oscar scale. I mean, he's really good. You know, he he and De Niro are villains, though. You know, yeah. and uh, they're a complaint. The most common complaint, other than the length, 
um, which I like a long movie, but you, this really feels long, um, is that um, the movie spends a lot of time on the bad guys mm. and not enough time on the Osage women and men who were the ones being uh, you know, victimized by all this. There are certain unfortunate realities that kind of partly explain that. People are bedridden, you know, poisoned, not very mm. lucid. Killed, yeah. Killed, dead. Um, but uh, it is a tricky kind of math that the movie does where we're spending a lot of time with the bad guys. And will that sort of frustration with the structure of the film detract from the really good performances of that villainy? I don't know. But, um, you know, DiCaprio is still just so magnetic, even though he's playing a vile person. Like, he just knows how to hold the camera. And he and Scorsese, obviously, in particular, know how to work together. Uh, Ditto De Niro. And, um, uh, yeah, so I think they're sort of definitely strong people in the mix. Um, It's just a matter of how they want to kind of frame that, you know, um, what kind of campaigning do you do? These are not hero roles by any means, but they are the biggest roles in the movie. So... Um, that'll be, that'll be a, t- a tough one for Apple to figure out. I was saying to Rebecca at our fabulous French lunch that you guys weren't at, Katie and David. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I've heard. Uh, that, you know, Apple, last time they had big Oscar success, they had the benefit of a kind of unexpected, heartwarming, crowd-pleaser, sleeper thing, you know. And, and there wasn't a ton that they had to do to make that movie's case that the movie and its cast wasn't making already. Yeah. Um, this is a trickier almost the complete opposite type of thing. Granted, you have big movie stars, but those movie stars are playing murderers and part of a, you know, a sort of genocide. And so that's, I don't know how you market that. And you, you, you don't use the CODA method, yeah. I'll tell you that. Well, and we all remember how the My, Oscars treated the Irishman, where they give it you know, 12 say, nominations yeah. and zero awards. Like we're, we're in a place where Scorsese also is getting taken for granted, um, which is crazy because of what he's given to cinema. Yeah, that was going to be my question is how does it compare for you guys to a movie like The Irishman, which similar length, I want to say similar critical reaction, um, strong performances. But yeah, to Katie's point, wound up going not only wound up going over trail, but like it was a foregone conclusion at that Oscars that it was not going to win anything. Yeah. This movie is better than The Irishman, I think. I, I don't know if you okay. agree, Richard. That's, that's notable. It's And I think you have this breakout star who is from the community that, you know, this movie should be raising up and it would put a lot on Lily's shoulders, I think, but I hope whatever else happens that, you know, she is seriously considered and she can speak so eloquently. I mean, there's so many amazing um, native performers in this movie that really deliver. It's it's sort of like when we were um, watching Flower Drum Song or any of these things where you're like, Look at all yeah. this talent. Like, I yeah. just can't wait where, to see where it goes from here because they they really deliver um, in a lot of different ways. But yeah, it is it is, it is a tricky one um, and they're going to have to navigate it carefully. So, but I, I it, to me, it's very clearly part of the conversation is just, yeah, we're, we're, we're not into the, the sort of drama and and backlash season yet. So I think they'll have <laughs> some... It. In terms of a potential backlash, they d- thus far have gotten a lot of um, words of approval from the Osage Nation, from yeah. tribal leaders. Um, they apparently, in reworking the focus of the book and, and then one version of the script, they really like worked hard to involve more um, Native people, especially Osage people, on camera, behind the camera, working in various production roles, consulting, consulting, consulting to make sure they were doing it right. And it seems thus far that that has paid off. But, um, you know, this is a very contentious issue, um, a, a real horror of Native American experience being told by a lot of white people and n- not exclusively white people, certainly. But, like, you know, I think there is that's going to be a sensitivity that they have to manage um, for many more months now. I love what Scorsese said in his Dublin interview that he did about kind of reframing Westerns. Like, he knows more about movies than maybe anyone alive. Um, and, you know, talking about, like, the legacy of Howard Hawks and John Ford's Westerns and how his film is answering to that. Like, I think the more he can talk about that and, like, even though he is an old white man, like, his ability to reframe these stories of the West and put a different focus on it, um, I think there's a real power in that. Huh. Yeah, I remember the way he talked about Power of the Dog a couple of years mm-hmm. ago. He, he presented Campion with something, and it was, you know, it's, it's a theme he's clearly been thinking about pretty actively. Yeah, I forgot about the Power of the Dog connection. 
Um, okay, we should wrap it up. Um, can continues onward. Um, but Richard and Rebecca, anything else you want to highlight before we go? Well, we both nearly got crushed to death trying to see Strange Way of Life, which is um, yeah. <laughs> Almodovar's film that had like an insane crowd control issue. Yeah, you it's guys a short got film. in and the president of the Academy didn't. So congratulations. I had to like basically pretend I was in John Cameron Mitchell's uh, entourage to get in. But <laughs> I mean, it's fine. What did that look like? <laughs> I cannot even explain it to you. But, um, you know, it's a short film. They're going to be, I think, releasing it in the fall. It'll be in the shorts race. It, it was I really enjoyed watching it. It's really well made. It stars Pedro Pascal and uh, Ethan Hawke. So, I, uh, you know, we'll, I think we'll be seeing much more of that when it comes to when we're talking awards race. And now that we've risked our lives for it, I really hope we're talking about it again. <laughs> they have a standby line this year for some public screenings. And uh, I guess it's a nice idea in practice that like, oh, if there are no shows of people with tickets, you can just get in. But that led to like hundreds of people hoping to get in and waiting in line for four and a half hours in the pouring rain to see a half hour movie. <laughs> uh, so that felt kind of bad. But I, I just want the full version of that of that short um, right. for sure. Um, there's not, a full, also, there's you not know, a full version, to be clear, but Almodovar has kind of teased no. that he might make one. Yeah. Well, no, I think he said it then, but like, I don't know. It just, it, it would, I, I like where the, the short's headed, but I don't, it didn't feel like enough of a meal as is, but um, it did allow uh, Almodovar to bring four Spanish hunks to Cannes, which was always appreciated. Yeah. Should we talk? I mean, the hunks have been like the, uh, uh, the everywhere you turn, I keep hearing about the hunks. Yeah. They were at our party or at least one of them was Manu Rios, who's from Elise, the beloved Spanish teen soap opera. Um, he's barely in the short, he, but just in the beginning. But um, yeah, it was just kind of fun to have early in the festival sort of a precedent setting like that. We also had that same day was the Coreda film Monster, uh, which you know provided my good cry of the year of the festival. I kind of wish they'd held it for later because I want to have that big cathartic, the trip's almost over cry rather than the trips is just starting cry. <laughs> but um but it was it's a really lovely movie, very much in his humanist fashion. People, you know, know him from shoplifters and other things. Um, uh, I kind of don't, I mean, my review's out there if people want to read it. I don't want to say too much about how the film is structured because it it does kind of give stuff away. But um, it it is part of a film canon, I think, that I did not expect it to be. Let's say that. And um, about certain issues perhaps germane to David and myself particularly. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I really appreciated that, that it was done so sensitively and um, in, a, in a way unique to that filmmaker. And that's one of the fun things of Cannes is being like, yeah, you want to see the new people, you want the unexpected stuff, but to check in with these, you know, mainstay stalwart Cannes directors like Coretta and um, have them, you know, remain in, in top form. That does it for this week's show. Uh, Next week, we'll be back. Richard and Rebecca will be back in North America. Um, And we'll be kicking off our June Pride flashback series. You might remember this from last year. We have picked five movies this year because there are five Thursdays in June. And we really hope you watch along with us. Uh, I'm going to go through the list of what we'll be watching with the dates and uh, where you can find them. We'll be kicking off on our June 1st episode with 1932's Shanghai Express, starring Marlena Dietrich and Anna Mae Wong. It's on the Criterion channel. You can watch it there. On June 8th, we will have Kiss of the Spider Woman from 1985 starring William Hurt. Uh, You can rent that on various platforms of your choosing. June 15th, we'll have My Beautiful Laundrette with Daniel Day-Lewis from 1985. That is available on HBO Max and also rentable. June 22nd, 1998's Gods and Monsters, starring Ian McKellen and Brendan Fraser, recent Best Actor winner. Uh, That is available on Paramount Plus and elsewhere. And then, speaking of Todd Haynes, we'll wrap up on June 29th with 2002's Far From Heaven. That is on Stars and Rentable. You can see Todd Haynes and Julianne Moore together in that one before May-December opens later this year. We hope you watch along with us. It's going to be a great miniseries. In the meantime, find us at Vanity Fair. Find uh, Richard and Rebecca's excellent cam coverage there. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws, and check out the Can Live blog too. Oh, yeah. Uh, the live blog has had uh, Richard and Rebecca's dispatches, like little bits of things that don't make it into stories, uh, fashion, party insight, all kinds of stuff. It's been really fun. Um, David, where are you? David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. 
Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for how to prepare for when these can movies finally make it to a theater near you goes to Rebecca Ford. Just get rest now. It's going to be a, quite an experience. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.